This week on the Mojo Radio Show, we say aloha from the island state of Hawaii. That's right, we're parading by the pool, getting loose at the luau, and hanging out with the hula girls. Uh, what's that? Only Bertie's going. <laughs> Great, that'd be right. What? Finish the promo? Yeah, whatever. Book him, Gazzo. Aloha, Robo. <laughs> Aloha, how are you? Yeah, good. Just to explain why we have a different introduction this week, folks, I have actually set up a little studio. Uh, I'm at the Marriott. Uh, hello to all my friends here at the Mar- Marriott. <laughs> so you're slumming it then, I can see. Yeah, I am. I'm on the main drag <laughs> of Waikiki. I'm 17 floors up at the Marriott. Come and say hello to all our Hawaiian listeners. Yeah. Uh, I'm here for a series of gigs. I'm working here. Uh, I've got a lot of speeches to do this week. But um, as the dates coincided with our studio time, I've got a mobile studio and uh, we're live from Hawaii. Yeah, li- and with some real life sound effects from um, Kealani Avenue. You behind you. Well, it's uh, Honolulu Festival time tonight. So oh, nice. Are, oh, you, so you timed it badly. <laughs> uh, it's so cool. There are just a thousand Harleys doing laps up and down the main beach. None of them are wearing helmets. It's of quite course. extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I picked a pretty good time. So I'm heading out tonight for a uh, couple of beers, watch the sunset, hang out with the hog riders, and celebrate a festival. So it's and actually, you know, what's interesting? An observation from uh, Hawaii. Hmm. There are so many people on their phones here, yet it's not the Hawaiians. Yeah, right. So it's not the natives, it's everyone else that comes. Yeah. Yeah. The the natives are literally watching the sun come up, come down. Yep. They're talking, they're riding bikes. Yep. They are chilling. Yep. Yet anyone who's on their phones, pretty much if you look at them and listen to them, they're tourists. It's very, very interesting. It's just an observation. And I was here, the guy who booked me last night, so to speak, book him, yeah. uh, I made the observation to him and he said it's quite right. It's bizarre, isn't it? I noticed the same thing when we went to Fiji a couple of years ago. Is like in the morning as the sun's coming up, all the people from the village down the beach were swimming in the water, sitting on the beach, watching the sun come up, having a great old time. And you'd walk around the resort and everyone, all the guests would be on their balconies on their phones or tablets. <laughs> like, I'm sitting here to look at the sunset, but I'll watch my tablet instead. It's like, are you kidding? Yeah. It's crazy. Anyway, there you go. But I, I was thinking of you guys. AP, I dig at your present, mate. What was that, a coconut? <laughs> I've got you. I've got to get you laid. Oh, funny. <laughs> it's been a while, I know. It's, a, it's an oldie but a goodie. Yeah. Um, I did. Uh, I've bought you a lay AP, and I think uh, uh, you're going to look very distinguished to go along with your distinguished voice. He'll look spectacular, although it doesn't match the red wine stains on his t shirt. The Mojo Radio Show. <laughs> we don't take ourselves too seriously. Oh, thank God. All right, we're going to get into this because we have got a big, long-form show for you this week, guys, only because I think it's one of the great the great shows of 2018 on the Mojo Radio Show. Mm. David Heinemeyer Hansen is the creator of Ruby on Rails, is one of the co-founders of Basecamp, formerly 37 Signals, who, and with Jason Freed, they've created a worldwide program for project management uh, most people in the corporate world will have heard of if not are using Basecamp he's a New York Times best-selling author he wrote two terrific books Rework and Remote so we're very very proud to have you here David welcome to the Mojo Radio Show mate thanks for having me when people ask you what you do 
How do you like to reply? Uh, it depends on who's asking, but uh, most <laughs> of the time I'll say um, uh, I'm a programmer. That's actually probably the most common uh, phrase I do because that's what I spend a lot of my time on, probably most of my time. So, so you're, you're known through the socials as DHH and we hear a lot about personal branding. Did you intentionally set out to do it or did you kind of do it then realize, hey, I've got my own brand? Well, what I realized pretty early was nobody could spell my last name. So if I wanted any chance of uh, people being able to spell my last name, I, I've got to make it simple. So DHH was certainly simpler than that. And then on many platforms, actually, I tried to sign up for um, – when I signed up for Twitter, like, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, whenever they had launched, um, they had like a character cap. I think your name could be just exactly like three characters shorter than what my full name is. <laughs> so I also pretty much had to just stick with uh, DHH there. And then um, it kind of just became a moniker, first in the programming circles, that uh, it would just be DHH. And now it's, it's really kind of funny because I'll meet people in person and they think that that's my name. They're like, oh, hey, DHH. <laughs> and I'm like, do you call anyone else you know by their initials? Um, It's just sort of an odd thing to do. So it's nice on uh, Twitter to have a short handle and most of the other platforms. And it also did turn into a brand, which in kind turned into sort of a a caricature at times and a mask and a role that's always fun to play. Now, I'm going to take us back a bit to 2010, I think, when the book Rework came out. The title of the book is Rework, Change the Way You Work Forever. Since the time you wrote the book, there's been a monumental change in the way we work. If you and Jason sat down to redo it, would you change much? It's funny because we are actually sitting down right now and writing the book again (laughs) of sorts. Um, Not rework directly, but we're working on a new book called... uh, The working title is The Calm Company. And it is the spiritual successor to Rework, basically extending a lot of the themes from Rework and and the updated observations that we have. And it's funny you say that the world changed a lot because in some ways it did, uh, but I think mostly for the worse. I think almost none of the things we belate in Rework have gotten better. A lot of them have gotten significantly worse. And I think such as as ASAP is poison. It it used to be someone would sign their email with like, oh, I need this ASAP. Now they type it into a chat room and they really mean ASAP as in the next five seconds. So I think a lot of the themes from Rework are sort of evergreen themes. And I would have wished that a lot of the things we wrote about were no longer relevant, that the chapters were sort of now just internalized in culture and and we didn't have to talk about these things anymore. But I think that we do, which is the reason why we're, we're following up Rework with a new book that tries to kind of address all the follow-on questions and in all the ways we've made the world worse since 2010. Does something come to mind immediately that you'd be prepared to share of an example of something that has gotten worse since you wrote Rework in 10? I think distractions was a big thing we were talking about in Rework, right? Um, That to do good creative work, you need long, uninterrupted stretches of time. And... In 2010, I think many of the worst distractions were things like the open office or, um, or even email or, or whatever have you. And those were bad enough. I think since 2010, 
uh, chat rooms, uh, online chat, has been adopted wildly in business. Um, Slack is obviously um, a major proponent of this and was probably sort of the, the kickoff to this new wave where more and more companies decided that real-time chat was the way they were going to collaborate. And I think that that has only made the interruption factory of the modern workplace even worse. Um, at least with emails, you could hide for 15 or 30 minutes. Uh, in a lot of companies, there's this expectation that you're constantly keeping half an eye on a chat room as it's scrolling by. And if you don't respond immediately, either you lose the opportunity and the floor to speak at all, or people go like, hey, where the hell is Jim? He didn't respond in five minutes. And I think that's a real regression and a and a real step backwards for the productivity of most companies, even if they don't realize it. Because the funny thing, of course, is as with most progress, on the surface, it looks really delicious. It looks like, oh, we're gonna get so much more collaboration, this is so much faster, we don't get drowned in big inboxes and whatever else have you. All the benefits of chat, which many of them are real, um, are discovered first. And then all the drawbacks of chat, in which are in many cases worse or more severe than the benefits are, they're discovered much later. I've got an interesting question I need to set up for you to get your perspective on. In the book, you talked about the alone zone, where you could essentially put up a sign or a symbol saying, this is my time. I want to be in the alone zone, can't be disturbed, and I want to do some deep thinking. Here's the setup an observation I'd be keen on your thoughts on is uh, I go to, I'm a member of WeWork here in Sydney. I go into WeWork. I like the buzz. I like the feel. I like the collaboration. But what I'm noticing is even though there are booths where you can go and make private phone calls, which are almost um, completely silent and soundproof, people are working at stations at these hubs and there are guys walking around making telephone calls, which are really loud. And you can hear them from across the room. Above the music and the bars, you can still hear them. In my view, it just it takes my attention away from what I'm doing. And I can hear the conversation. And it just seems like, to your point, it's, it's an illustration of there's a lot of great things about WeWork. I'm worried about where that's going for distraction and concentration. And I'm wondering, in your mind... Do you still believe that stillness and silence are part of the deep work, deep thinking process? Is that how, was that what you do? And is this leading into this challenge you've got that you're now going to write about in your second book? Absolutely. I think it's the core of productivity is to get long stretches of uninterrupted time. And uninterrupted time is freedom, not just for explicit direct interruptions as someone walking over to your desk and asking you a specific question, but just as much freedom from ambient disruptions and interruptions as you talk about. Someone walking around where you can't help but pay some of your attention to listening to that conversation. And the thing is, if you even just spend 5% of your attention span, um, the deficit is on your work is far more than 5%. There are all matters of work that simply can't be performed efficiently, well, creatively, unless you have sort of a total cocoon mentally to walk into. And I think the unfortunate thing with WeWork and similar uh, office sharing environments is that they cloned the worst office design of modern companies, which is the open office. 
Um, and they cloned that, I'm sure, because A, it's cheaper. And second of all, somehow office designers who uh, sort of pulled this over where we got a lot more um, room or, or sort of we could jam in more people in less space, they successfully branded that as cool. And I think that is one of the greatest advertising tricks of, uh, of the modern era, that you can take people out of what used to be sort of uh, a normal privilege of a high-end creative worker, that they would get their own office where they could close the door, or at least they'd be in a, in a shared office with maybe two or three co-workers. And then they put these people out in basically an open pen, and then they said, oh, this is what the future looks like. This is what creativity looks like. And people bought it. I think it's just, it's marvelous and it's ingenious and it's evil. Um, but I think, uh, unfortunately, that is a, a pattern that's been adopted by WeWork and, and other um, desk sharing setups. And, and I think it's atrocious. And I think it's part of this problem we have um, where we're getting all these tools, we're getting all these productivity enhancing aids and yet we're getting no more done in fact we're getting less done which then leads to this uh, mistaken notion that we have to stay at the office longer and longer it used to be um that that 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week was a very full week and people would be proud of that now from multiple sources you have people proclaiming the wisdom of working 80 hours a week 100 hours a week 120 hours a week i think the resume even argued that you could work 130 or 140 hours a week if you were quote strategic about your bathroom breaks i mean how is this progress how is this making it better it seems to me that it just sounds like a, a version of prison um not a version of the future of work that's gold brother that's gold Golden chains. God, don't drop the soap. I just want to ask you about something, and this is something I've, I haven't mentioned to Rubber yet, but I'm fascinated by this. But I want to take you back to the age of 25. You don't have a driver's license. Yet, by the age of 34, you are on the podium at Le Mans, the world's greatest motorsport endurance race as a racer. Did it start as a dream? Was it, a, is it something to pulled you toward it or has it just happened through happenstance? Well, when I was um, 25 and younger, I was living in Copenhagen, Denmark, and even the thought of owning a car seemed foreign. Um, first of all, living in a great city like Copenhagen, a car is by no means a requirement. In many ways, it's a liability and it's a hassle. Uh, and I was getting around just fine on my rollerblades or taking the bus or taking the train. And the other factor of that was that Denmark has a unique tax system when it comes to cars. Um, you basically buy one car and you pay for three. I understand that the tax is also pretty high in, in Australia, but I don't know if they're quite as aggressive as that, which basically means that the cars you see on the street are all shitty old beaters or tiny little uh, sardine cans, not exactly the kinds of cars that inspire the heart of, uh, of automotive enthusiasts. So. This notion of actually getting a driver's license seemed useless, which was why I never did, um, until I started traveling. And then I realized that there's lots of other countries uh, in the world that don't exactly have cities designed as well as Copenhagen. So you kind of need a car in a lot of places if you want to get around and see things. So that was the reason I got my driver's license. It was not to start the pursuit of a dream of going to Le Mans. It was to get around when I went on vacation. Now, 
I then also moved to um, Chicago later that year in 2005, and it turned out that it was a really good thing that I got my driver's license because I moved to Chicago, and unlike Copenhagen, let's just say the uh, public transportation system is not exactly um, something they put on the billboards in Chicago and brag about um, because it's horrendous. And I quickly realized that I absolutely did need a car. So I bought my very first car as I came to, to Chicago. Um, and quickly learned that I had a taste for it. And I had uh, sort of a lot of time to make up for. So I, I kind of got into cars. And after a couple of years, uh, a friend I had met in Chicago took me down to the local racetrack uh, about an hour's drive from Chicago and gave me a ride in a race car. And that was when this sort of attraction to cars turned into an obsession with learning how to race well. And I spent the next maybe four years just pounding around that local track, getting really comfortable in a race car. And then I started in 2009 on a path to, to start racing competitively. And it was really around that time where I connected with something else, which was during the, um, during the 90s and early 2000s uh, in Denmark. I had been watching racing, and the main race I'd actually been watching was the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And the reason I was watching the 24 Hours of Le Mans wasn't just because it was a great race, which of course it is, but because I had a countryman, Tom Christensen, who had already won the race several times and ended up winning the race a, a record nine times in his career, earned the moniker Mr. Le Mans. And I don't know, there's just something about seeing your countryman do something that invokes a belief of like, oh, if, if Tom could do that, then... I mean, why couldn't I go to Le Mans and have a, have a good time? So I connected those two things that I started going racing with this idea that like, hey, I remember Tom, like Tom went racing at, at Le Mans. This is really cool. That would be a great achievement. I'd love to be at the grid at Le Mans. And it was basically then from there, I, I went to Le Mans the first time in 2012. So a short, what is that? Three, four years? Uh, no, a little more than that. Five years after I first sat in a race car. Um, and, and it was just, it was magical. Right. Like the 24 hours of Le Mans is the greatest sporting event in the world for me, uh, for lots of other people. It's just such a uh, such a history, uh, such a depth of challenge that um, I, I stuck with it. And, and after doing the race three times, I, as, I, as you said, uh, won it in 2014 with uh, with Aston Martin. So that became a dream come true, even if it wasn't really a dream that existed otherwise um, from sort of it was like early childhood. I walked around as a six year old thinking I was going to be a race car driver. It sounds like you really dedicated yourself to learning the art. David in the car and I suspect the physical part and the mental part but you seem to have this self-imposed process of pointing out your own flaws in order to fix them to get better is that fair absolutely uh, it's part of that beginner's mindset where when I come to a new domain whether that's race car driving or programming or photography or writing or any of the other skills that I've picked up over the years I know that I'm no good right no one has ever been good at anything that they didn't practice intensely uh, beforehand. No one just wakes up one morning and decides to be a race car driver and is then amazing at it. So having the humility that you're going to suck and you're going to be terrible in the beginning, I think is quite, quite helpful. And then the other thing is um, I don't put the bar as who I'm competing against within a geographical zone. I don't want to be the best racer in Joliet 
Illinois. I don't want to be sort of um, the best racer in, in, in the U.S. No, I want to compete against who's the best in the, in the world. And it's not because I want to be in the best in the world because I think actually that's a, that is a pursuit that you have to start uh, single-mindedly and dedicate your entire life to if you want to be the best in the world at anything. And I want to do many things with my life. So being the best in the world at anything, I think is not very helpful. But breaking into the top 5%, that's very doable. And for me, the, the top 5% simply meant I want to be one of the best, as they call it in racing, gentleman drivers, people who do not drive race cars professionally and as a vocation. And that's what I'm going to set my sight on. So I'm going to keep advancing and compete against better and better gentleman drivers. And as part of that, professional drivers too, and climb the ladders until I get to the very top. And for gentlemen drivers interested in endurance racing, the very top is the 24 hours of Le Mans. So that was my goal right from the get-go of getting into racing. Get to the top, get to compete against the best gentlemen drivers in the world and win. You, you have a very experimental mindset from not just the racing but also from programming. And you have your, the process that I've heard you talk about, which is take one, take two, take three. You seem happy to try things and know that it's a progression to get to where you want to get to. Can you take us through your own, how that plays out in your mind, that take one, take two, take three, and so on? So the approach I have to learning is to break anything that I'm learning into separate elements and treat those as individual skills that need to be learned. And then you compose those skills together into the whole act. So for example, with driving a race car, um, take braking, for example. Braking and braking efficiently is a whole art onto itself. Uh, being able to nail the pedal within five meters of travel going 300 kilometers an hour uh, is a skill in itself. Getting the right trace where you hit the pedal really hard and you have to hit a precise amount of pressure, let's say 80 bar or something, and then you have to bleed it off in a certain way so that the car is perfectly slowed down at the apex of the corner without inducing any weight transfer uh, or unnecessary weight transfer in the car. Uh, that's a whole thing. That's a whole thing you can focus on and just try to get better at. Then getting the feel for the right minimum speed at the apex of a corner, it's a whole separate thing. Figuring out how much you can roll through the corner, how much you can lean on the outer tires, um, a whole thing. So you have to sort of go through all these. If you're trying to learn everything at once, um, you're not likely to make a whole lot of progress. You have to focus on these sort of micro elements. For example, when you're racing on the track, you get the opportunity to practice braking however many turns that have hard braking on the track. So, for example, at Le Mans, I don't know, we'll break a, uh, see how many times, like 10, 12 times or something like that hard. Um, so those are 10, 12 times every single four minutes where you get an opportunity to, to practice that. And I found braking and decomposing something like race car driving into these separate skills is, is really useful to be able to learn it because otherwise it gets really overwhelming. It's the same thing learning photography. Uh, just learning the, the triangle of ISO, aperture, uh, and shutter speed, that's a thing. Then learning how to visually identify which is the correct aperture given your distance to the subject you're taking a picture of and how much you want to blur the background, that's its own thing. Um, Composition is its own thing. Uh, color grading is its own thing. There's so many elements that go into being able to produce a pleasing image that can be decomposed and learned individually. And as such, is much less daunting. And you can sort of then just take it one step at a time and, and put it all together in the end. Uh, I find a lot of people are not necessarily interested or willing to 
break the skill down to that level of detail to develop an eye for what are the even the set elements of a skill uh, and then focus on them. I'm just curious about something here and it's to do with the the learning process and your learning process, David. You said that even when you took your driver's test, all through the test, you narrated everything to the instructor. You did everything out loud, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You, you talked him through what you were doing, that take one, take two, take three type thing. And even that seems to be very auditory in that you, when you're reading books, you have this capacity to read out loud to yourself are you have you noticed that you are a very auditory learner where you you enjoy music you enjoy audio books more than reading you talk things through because i don't I, I just people i don't know if people identify how they learn best but you seem to be very auditory in how you learn it's funny i hadn't even thought about it in that way what i try to why i talk it through it's not so much for sort of the audio of it, but as in another way of decomposing the performance, of breaking it down in such a way that I can identify individual parts and criticize those parts, whether I did well or I didn't do well, and keep doing that. So the, the funny thing, as you mentioned, when I was taking my driver's test, uh, and I was doing it out loud in the car, usually I just do it as a running monologue inside my head, um, in ways of trying to constantly develop my eye and see like, oh, I made a mistake there. And the reason I want to recognize that mistake mistake is such that I can lodge a little marker in my brain that the next time I see the similar scenario, I have thought through what I want to do different. And it was just funny because I was talking it out in the car and the instructor that was sitting next to me was like, I've never heard that before in my life. Usually people try to put on a facade and say like, oh, no, I'm really good or whatever. They would never willfully call out things because I was calling out the tiniest of things, right? Something the instructor might not even have noticed that I thought was a mistake that uh, that I quickly identified. And I mean, that just left him with the impression that I really cared about learning this skill and subsequently, um, thankfully, had me pass. Um, but I, I do this all the time, especially in a race car as well. I have this running monologue of like, oh, that corner, what did I do wrong? Oh, I overshot the corner by a little bit. Let me try to pull it back five meters next time. And, and I think that running dialogue is just a, a way of having self-criticism so that you identify the uh, areas of improvement and you think about how you're going to do it different next time because you don't just automatically learn by doing the same thing over and over and over again. That is repeating the same lesson um, and, and not really learning anything new from it. The whole purpose of learning is that you encounter a situation, you perform a task, and then you figure out how can I have done that better, right? Uh, and to do something better, you have to first identify mm. the faults or the flaws of your execution, and then you have an opportunity to rectify it and at least change it, at least try something new. So a lot of the running dialogue is not necessarily just about, oh, I know what I need to do next time. It's about, well, now I certainly know what not to do. Let's try something different and see if it works better. And it's funny because I've heard you talk about constraints where in today's society people moan about constraints, but your view is we should embrace them, isn't it? Absolutely. Constraints are right up there with um, freedom from interruption as elements of an environment that can spark creativity. 
um, at work at Basecamp, for example, we do almost all of our new development work on Basecamp within a six-week cycle. That's not because everything we want to work on automatically um, happens to be estimated at six weeks. Absolutely not. Six weeks is a budget where we say there's a version of what we're trying to do that can fit within six weeks. There's also a version of it that could take two months. There's a version that could take two years. And perhaps there's even a version that could take three weeks. But by setting the constraints and saying, well, we want to ship something in six weeks, we've also told ourselves um, we're going to have to make some calls. We're going to have to make some trade-offs and we're going to have to say no to a lot of things. And I think most of the best design and most of the best decisions come from the fact of being upfront with trade-offs like that. The worst thing you can do to most creatives is to say, here's unlimited money, unlimited time and unlimited people. They will create a shitty product doing that, right? Almost no one is capable of wrestling with the unlimited because it just doesn't supply the amount of feedback that's necessary to make good decisions. When you have clear constraints in time, in money, in people, um, you'll optimize within those constraints. And that's really an incredibly powerful technique. Most people, though, tend not to be explicit about those constraints. The constraints are just kind of there and they're fuzzy and they're different in different people's heads. And that's a recipe for illusions of both disagreement and agreement when people are not arguing from the same assumptions. Um, if we're trying to make progress together towards a completion of a project or some other task, we have to be on the same level playing field. And starting with the base constraints of what do we have here? What do we have to work with is, I think, really a, a base floor that such sets people up for success. In the book rework that you did with Jason, you said for everyone who loves you, there's someone who hates you. And although I don't see it, but you have gained a reputation as being kind of outspoken and it's brought you attention, obviously, because you tend to have an opinion and speak your mind. How do you deal with the naysayers that don't agree with you or don't like your approach to it, David? What, what's the dialogue in your mind that you use to deal with naysayers? The first element is, as you say, I believe that they are necessary to bring order in the universe. There are almost no people, no ideas that challenge what we're already doing and how things have already been done who are universally praised because there are vested interests in all sorts of directions of how we should go or what we should think or how we should organize work or so forth. And there are people who invested in either side. And if you're trying to push for substantial change, not necessarily even in how people do things, but how they think about things, um, that's a bit of a violent act. It's a bit of a violent act to change someone's mind. Their mind was in one place, and then you, through arguments and rhetoric, um, are trying to get them somewhere else, right? It's just inevitable that some people are not going to be interested in going. And when they're not interested in going, the harder you hit, the more forcefully you speak, the more brazenly they will resist. But it's also the same techniques that tend to be the most persuasive, right? And actually tend to move people. So if you want to inspire that passion, if you want to inspire people to follow you or like you or appreciate what you have to say, you have to accept that there's going to be this counterforce that brings balance to the universe of all the people who think that guy is an idiot who's full of himself and doesn't know what he's talking about. So 
that really helps, I think, to just go with the instinctual outlook that this is normal. This is not an aberration. There's not something uniquely wrong with me just because people call me an idiot or an asshole or uh, unknowing of what I talk about. This is what happens to everyone who tries to um, speak their mind in, in, in ways that seek to change things. So that's the first fact, right? The second fact then is um, – Look behind the words. For a lot of people who are violently opposed to something, it's not necessarily just about the idea. It's about the whole domain outside of that and all the things that they think that that implies. I've had plenty of arguments with people where you go, the heat of this argument is not warranted by the merits of the argument itself. There must be something else going on, right? And there usually always is. There's all these trends and paradigms and movements and flows in both the industry and in society that influence how people think about things. And then they have a tendency to to file things into buckets. Are you with me? Are you against me? Are you on my team? Are you on another team? Um, and all these things are not about the argument itself. And, and you have to say like, well, do you know what? That's just that's just how the world is divided. And then finally, I'd say related to that, a lot of people just had a shitty day, right? The amount of negative or angry tweets I'll get for someone where perhaps their cat just pissed all over their floor or their boss uh, gave them an assignment that made them stay late or they spilled coffee over their shirt or something else. Like this is how humans are, right? Like our emotions are not neatly contained. They bleed. So I'm getting some of it from that, right? And then you just accept that. Do you know what? I'm like that sometimes too. I'm a impatient asshole at times because there are things going on in my life that are not related to this. Um, I think most people can sympathize with the idea of being short with someone who didn't deserve it, not because of that person, but because it was just the straw that broke the camel's back either that day or that week or that year or in terminal cases that life. We had a guest on a couple of weeks ago, David, called Dr. Meg Jay, who wrote a book called Supernormals about people who've grown up with resiliency. And one of the things she left us with was you've got to work out what you're prepared to fight for. And it's something you guys also talked about in Rework, that a company, a business needs to work out what what are you really, what's what's worth fighting for? What are you willing to fight for? I guess the questions I've got is around companies that have that, they state it, they talk about it, but then as soon as things start to go bad, they all go, they forget all that and they go back to making the sale and just revenue. Are you seeing that? Is that something which is becoming more prevalent now where the companies aren't really working out what they're prepared to fight for, what's really important to them? And that's good on the sunny days, but on the rainy days, they just fall back to revenue and numbers and margin. How, how do you see that? I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's another one of those human reactions. When people get scared, they fall back on safety. They fall back on the things that don't try to rock the boat, right? They try to hide, they try to cover. I think one of the factors that's driving that fear, especially in technology, the business that I'm in, is that a lot of people who supposedly are their own boss because they started their own company are not their own boss at all because they have investors and those investors have certain timelines upon which they require certain returns, which sets up a very um, frantic dynamic and a frantic timeline and in many cases wildly unrealistic goals that then make the people who are tasked with fulfilling those goals despair. 
And when they despair, they forget all about their noble intentions and values and practices, and they fall back on what they think that person would want, right? And I think that that's where a lot of both manners and morals break, is when people are subjected to pressures, when they think there's nothing else I can do, I must do everything within my power, including all the things I don't want to do to please this person who gave me a lot of money or holds, otherwise holds a lot of power over me, right? It's that sort of power dynamic we're used to recognizing in the employee uh, employer relationship that if someone holds the power over your job, you might be willing to do some pretty unsavory things to keep that job. We don't so much think about it when it comes to business owners. They're supposed to be their own bosses, but plenty of them are not. And they end up in places where I don't think any of them would have thought, well, this is what I set into world to the world to be, right? I really want to create a piece of social media that's all about just hawking and extracting the privacy of everyone who uses it and then sell it to the most despicable highest bidder there is. No one wakes up in the morning and thinks like, oh, shit, that's what I want to do with my life, right? But oftentimes these uh, noble uh, ideas for what you want to do with your life and what your values are, they can't withstand the pressure, which is why I try to encourage as many entrepreneurs as I can get my hands on that you have to be really careful with who you let into your life. And particularly who you let into your life who have power over you because um, the reasons you got started with this business in the first place was probably because you wanted to call the shots, because you wanted to do things differently and because you wanted to stay true to some ideals. And that is just incredibly hard to do once you're on your uh, – Series C funding round and you have 18 months of runway left before the millions run out and, and you're, you're bust. So a lot of that is really just about getting yourself into a situation where um, you're not likely to come under pressure. So that's the situation we've tried to put ourselves in at Basecamp, that we are our own bosses. We don't have investors who hold sway over us that can dictate our decisions. We don't have goals that require us to do unsavory things to meet them. In fact, we're very happy with the growth of the business, whether that's a little or that's a lot, that's that's fine. We want to get to a place where we can do wonderful work for great customers along with um, wonderful co-workers and do it for the long term. And when you set yourself up in those ways, it's not that hard, right? Like I think of it all the time that I'm not special. If you took me and you put me into one of those pressure cookers, I mean, odds are that I'd break just as well. What's the term individual contributor mean? And are we likely to see more of that in the future in the workplace, do you think? Individual contributor is one of those funny terms that I actually only learned just recently when we started getting more rigorous about our uh, compensation studies and comparing ourselves to others in the industry. But what I think it means is basically just someone who does the work, someone who's not a manager primarily. And The reason I perhaps was unfamiliar with that term is because that's everyone at Basecamp. Everyone at Basecamp is, uh, to a larger or greater extent, an individual contributor. We do not have any full-time managers, and that includes both Jason and I as CEO and CTO. We do actual work. We work on the product. I will do programming. Jason do design. Everyone else we have, uh, including the team leads for the teams that we have, they also do the work themselves. And... I think this, for me at least, this is where bliss is. 
I don't know how management got to sort of be propped up as this goal that everyone should aspire to. Perhaps there's something in a lot of companies where getting on a manager track and not being an individual contributor anymore is the is the way to get um, titles and and more money. But I caution anyone to to think about what they're trading off against that. I find that the happiest people that I know are not the managers. They are the people who get to do work that they love doing for long stretches of uninterrupted time, right? In many ways and on many days, uh, I have my days stolen by managerial responsibility and I curse them. Not because I don't think the work is important, but I certainly think it is, but because I'm jealous. I'm jealous of the individual contributor who gets to spend the majority of their time in the creative realm uh, making something that they love doing. So, I I hope that that is the path forward, right? And I think that it is in many ways because we've managed to make so much of the mechanics of running a business and at least with a reasonable size team manage uh, the business, uh, something where we don't need full-time managers, right? At Basecamp, we've gotten to, what are we, 54 people right now without any full-time managers. And a lot of that comes through the wonderful productivity gains of modern software or communication tools that we can use tools like Basecamp itself to track the projects that we have, that we don't have to have dedicated project managers who are keeping long lists on their desks and folding out Gantt charts and whatever else have you, that software can take the role of a lot of this coordination and leave more of the time for individual contributors to simply do the work, which, as I said, I think that's where happiness is. That's where flow is found. That's where fewer conflicts arise and uh, that's what we're trying to optimize Basecamp for. There's somebody listening right now. They're going, yeah, it's fine for you, David. You get a million bucks in the bank and you're racing at Le Mans and you've got celebrity friends and you're smart. It's all right for you. It's different. You don't understand the real world. It's different than the real world. That was one of the first things that really dawned on me when I read Rework. I love that way you framed the real world. And to this day, I still see it that way. Talk to me about the real world. The real world is such a beautiful term, right? Because it is just a place that's filled with all the pessimism, negativity, and poor odds that someone could conjure up in their mind, which is really where it's happening in their mind, right? Because when someone says that won't work in the real world, they're not talking about your world. They're specifically talking about what is actually working in your world, I don't think could work for me. Uh, which is really just a lack of imagination, uh, which is sad that someone has constrained their view of reality to be such a narrow place where nothing new can work, where everything that we try fails, and where everything we've always done must always be that way. That is a terribly depressing place to live. So I invite everyone to get the hell out of the real world and realize (laughs) that most lives could be entirely different tomorrow if they dared make that decision. Now, there's all sorts of reasons why people don't want to make decisions that change their life. Uh, And some of them are very valid and some of them are less valid or some of them are at least just grounded in their fears not reality, right? Which is the irony of people using the term the real world because the real world is an imaginary place. I'm going to flick to the back of the book now to ask you my next question. The back of the book says, in big letters, ASAP is poison, underdo the competition, meetings are toxic, fire the workaholics, emulate drug dealers, fight bloat, planning is guessing, 
and inspiration is perishable. Tell me why, in your view, inspiration is perishable. I think we all have this sense that when a new idea pops into our mind, that is when we're most excited about it. Or maybe it has a short ramp up acceleration, but it's pretty close to its inception stage where we're most excited about new ideas. And if there's something that determines the productivity of the modern creative worker, it's motivation. Motivation can move mountains. Motivation is the difference between putting in uh, three excellent days and having uh, magical things happen or putting in three slotty weeks and having nothing of consequence happen. I have this happen to me all the time where uh, if you look over the course of three months, where did I add value to both the business and the world? There are on these little peaks and a lot of these peaks are powered by inspiration. For example, I just launched a new YouTube channel um, called, or a new YouTube series called Unwriting Software Well, where I dive into the Basecamp code base and talk about it and how it works and how it doesn't work. And I produced five episodes of that in five days. These are 15 to 25 minute episodes. And that was all powered by inspiration. I had the idea that I wanted to show other programmers how I thought about the actual programs we write at Basecamp, not the sterilized, idealized versions that people write in example codes and tutorials, but real, messy, uh, actual code. And if I had planned something like that out and said like, oh, I should really do content marketing, I guess is what we call it these days, um, it would be very um, productive and profitable for us if we had a YouTube channel. What should I talk about? Let me see what people are really interested in right now. Can I find some hot keywords that I can then say something about? Oh, my God, just shoot me now, right? Like the whole thing would have taken three months to try to theorize through it and optimize through it and then uh, drag myself into producing it because I probably didn't really want to. Versus this example of um, the channel I was super excited about. So I managed to produce a ton of what we call content. I just hate that word. A ton of videos, let's call them that, right? A ton of videos um, talking about code in a very short amount of time. And I think there's a lot of work that is like that, that uh, it's not even going to happen, actually, unless you can inject it with a serious dose of motivation. And motivation just drips from this inspiration of a new idea. So, once that sort of, if I had basically thought about the, I went from thinking about this on writing software, well, YouTube channel in the morning to producing the first episode in the afternoon and five days later having a sort of a library of these videos. If I had thought about like, oh, I should do this. And then I had let that idea sit for three months. I guarantee you that I would not have been one iota as productive as I was uh, by reaping the fruits of inspiration as they were fresh. You've got several things that you have said you deeply love, like Basecamp, Ruby on Rails. You said you deep, and the word you used was deeply love. You deeply love photography, obviously car racing. Are you a generalist in your reading and learning, David? Are you, do you read and learn broadly? Very much so. I love... Uh, anything that tickles the mind and whether that's uh, business books about how to structure organizations, whether that's philosophy about viewing the absurd world, whether that is um, novels of uh, 1984 or 
Kafka as a trial or anything else. I have a very broad range of interests. And I find that anything else is kind of an affront to the world. There's such a variety of excellence out there that it's kind of like coming to a buffet that's just packed with the most glorious meals and then just finding the first little corner of the table and say, oh, I'm just going to sit here. Like, I'm going to get really into these olives. You know what? There's a little more to the world than just olives, right? And olives can be wonderful and there's many different kinds and you can go really deep on that, but I prefer a, a varied diet. And I think there's something special that happens and that's where I get a lot of my ideas is by cross-pollination, uh, trying to apply ideas from, say, philosophy to programming and see what, what shakes out. Try to apply ideas from programming to how to run a business and see what shakes out. And I find that this is um, just invigorating. It's invigorating to learn about new fields and new ideas, regardless of where they come from. And then even if you are interested in going deep on something like programming, for example, I've been programming now for, what, a good 25 years, and I continue to learn more. And most of the new that I learn about programming is through this method of cross-pollinization. It's not because I just read more trade journals about programming. It's because I try to apply all these other domains that I've picked up, such as um, psychology or philosophy, to the domains that I already know and see what shakes out. You're, you're a bit of a fan of the Stoics. If you think about Stoicism and the great philosophers that you just mentioned, do you have a favorite learning or philosophy that you've taken from the Stoics that is front of your mind each day? Yes. So Stoicism is really the branch of philosophy, um, or even broader than that, or I suppose defined by that, the, the search for a good life that has resonated most deeply with me because it's so utterly practical. I love all sorts of branches of philosophy, but a lot of it can't necessarily be said to be immediately practical. The Stoics were really the handymen of philosophy. They were coming up with these heuristics that you can use on a daily basis. Um, and I'll, I'll pick out a, comment, a couple of them. Seneca, for example, um, has this notion of life is long enough if you know how to spend it well. Everyone keeps talking about, oh, I don't have enough time or I'm going to run out of time. And number of times you hear about people having regrets in old age um, are legion. Uh, I think Seneca's notion of there is enough time if you spend it well is incredibly powerful and liberating because then it leaves it us to, of us to spend it well and to consider whether we are spending it well, which is something I try to consider, if not daily, at least weekly or monthly, am I spending my life well? And life is sort of the grand question, but it goes even more deeply than that. Did I spend this day well? Did the tasks and activities that I just spent the last eight hours on add up to anything that makes any difference in the world? And if they didn't, which certainly happens frequently enough, how can I avoid having another day like that? How can I rearrange and redesign either my work or my life such that I don't end up having more of these wasted days? Because I want to make sure that at the end, uh, when I sit at, what, 80 or 90 or 100, um, let's hope it's not that much further than that. Um, there's plenty of people working on that. I think 100 years should be enough for everyone. That's gold. Uh, when I'm sitting at the end there, I want to look back and think, do you know what? I 
I'm okay. I, I'm ready to go. And mm-hmm. the way I practice that, because that's, I mean, a hundred years from now is for me, uh, let's see, uh, what's that? 62 years from now. Right. I try to practice that, uh, on, on, on a shorter scale. I look back on my twenties and I have no regrets. I did all the things that I wanted to do in my twenties as someone in their twenties should do. I didn't try to uh, crowd out all the sort of flavors of life that you should enjoy when you are in your twenties, because I was just single-mindedly focused on say building a business or something else. Um, So I don't look back with any regrets. I'm almost done with my thirties now. I'm going to turn 39 this year and I can look back on that whole decade of my life and say, I spend it well. I don't want to live it again. I don't want to go back to being 20. I don't want to go back to being 35. I want to be who I am right now at this moment, which leads to this other concept in Stoicism that's encapsulated in uh, Amor Fati, love your fate. People always ask me in uh, these interviews, and I'm happy you haven't asked it yet. And if it's on your sheet of upcoming questions, you can strike it now. What would you have done different (laughs) if you know all the things you know now? What would you have told your younger self that you should have done different? And my answer is always nothing. I don't want to do anything different. I want to have hit all the same struggles. I want to have had that beauty and glory of ignorance of youth to power me through all sorts of things that I wouldn't do today, knowing all the things that I know. I created a major open source framework in Ruby and Rails, and I had no idea that that would then consume at least 10,000 hours over the rest of my life. If I had known that up front, if I had told my former self, hey, do you know what? Um, This thing you're working on might well end up being 15,000 hours of your life. I might go like, eh, not worth it, right? So I think uh, this idea that um, we should love our faith, and of course, it's a very fair argument, a very fair critique to say, that's easy for you to say, your faith turned out pretty all right. Um, But that's sort of why a lot of these philosophical principles go hand in hand. Why did my life turn out the way it did? Well, some of it was surely luck and timing and whatever is something that can't be replicated. And there are all sorts of other privileges that I was blessed with, such as growing up in Denmark and, and so on and so forth. But there were also a fair amount of choice in that, right? There was at least some proportion of that pie, however large a slice you think that that is, that was me making choices about where I wanted to take my life and being conscious about that. That was one of the, um, one of my uh, fellow travelers in the fandom of stoicism is Tim Ferriss. And the key concept that I took away from his uh, first big book, The 4-Hour Workweek, was this notion of lifestyle design, that a lifestyle is not just handed to you. You don't just have to accept the template as it's coming down. You don't have to accept society's goals and, and, and ideals. You can design your own. And that was such a liberating idea for me to, um, to think about and to help guide me in this pursuit towards the good life. You've taken me somewhere else, which is interesting. So in order to – so Seneca said there is enough time if you spend it well. And you've just taken us onto the time issue. Now, if I give you a quote from Bruce Lee, the movie star and Hollywood actor, martial artist, he said, it's not the daily increase, but the daily decrease. Hack away at the unessentials. For DHH, in the last, say, 30 or 100 days, what have you gotten rid of that wasn't essential that frees up time for you to ensure you do the things that allow you to have enough time 
of, for the things that are important to you? Like, what have you gotten rid of or eliminated or you no longer do? It's a beautiful notion, and it strikes to the core of uh, the things that I cherish. I, I'll answer this in a roundabout way. <clears throat> I wrote um, the, I think it's called The Magical Art of Tidying Up uh, last year by Marie Kondo, which is this short little book about uh, the bliss you can derive from throwing shit out. And I'm a huge believer in that, in all factors of life, not just your physical stuff, but your mental stuff and your work processes and, and so forth. What can we not do? Um, because that's what's going to make the, the space for the things that we do want to do. So I think, I, I don't know if, if I can point to a single thing that was something I used to spend a lot of time on that I no longer spend time on, but I hold up my barricades. So for example, I say no to almost every invitation that I get. I probably in the first uh, three months of the year have gotten, I don't know, uh, 30 invitations to speak at conferences around the world. And lots of those invitations were very tempting because they were either at places I wanted to go or they were wonderful conferences or there were very kind people inviting me. There were all sorts of reasons for why you should say yes. What I've learned is I must say no to almost everything to be able to do the few things I really want to do and do them well. So I turned down all these opportunities. I turn down opportunities to have coffee or have lunch with interesting people all the time because um, that kind of stuff punctures the day. And as we talked about in the beginning, uh, the notion of having long stretches of uninterrupted time is for me where the magic happens. So I have to really guard the not just the hours I have in the day, but the integrity of those hours and the chaining of those hours together. But even um, as I, I say that, there's within the business, for example, we just announced this year that we were going to do a hiring freeze or get as close to it as we possibly can, even though last year of the business, 2017, was the best year of the business ever. Most customers, most revenue, blah, 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 right? Everything is going swimmingly. And normally when everything is going swimmingly, what people are looking to do is to expand. What we decided was uh, 54 people is enough. At Basecamp, we don't have a lot of administrative staff. In fact, we only really have one administrative person who's dedicated to that work, which is our office manager. The rest of it falls on Jason and I. So there's simple a lot of mechanics of running the business that falls to Jason and I. And a lot of those mechanics of running the business are directly proportionate in the time that are needed for them with the headcount you have for your business. And we decided enough. We don't want more. And we don't even want to outsource that word, word because we're just at this magical space right now where we can basically get away without any full-time managers, grow the business a little more, and we need to add not just a professional manager, but a whole layer of professional managers. And that would not only complicate the business, it would take away from the time that we have to spend on the, these essentials of actually creating that both Jason and I enjoy so thoroughly um, that uh, um, we don't want to do. I say in my personal life too, I've um, pulled back a little bit on, on racing, which is something I otherwise enjoy dearly this year. But uh, I had been racing in a series called the um, FIA World Endurance Championship, which travels around the world to nine different locations uh, every year and, and puts on a race. We go to China and Japan and Bahrain and so on. And I've been doing that for six years. And even though I love being in a race car, the novelty of it and the rate with which I am learning new things and thus the high of the flow moments that I get have been decreasing to the point where I now go like, 
do I really want to spend a week of my life traveling to Shanghai for the seventh time racing around a track that I don't necessarily love, but is part of a championship that I'm just in. And now I have to breathe the goddamn awful air of Shanghai for a week and be away from my kids and whatever. And I'm like, no, I, I don't. So that was part of the decision that left me um, simply thinking I have to make a change, right? I, I had one too many times coming home from a racing trip like that that lasted a week where I thought, that's not worth it. That wasn't worth it. Um, so that was a change. So this year I'm, I'm, I'm racing in the U.S. I can show up on a Friday, get my racing done on a Saturday and a Sunday and be home by Sunday night. And that's a material change, even in something that's just a hobby, even if it's a serious hobby, that has allowed me to then make space for, for other things or dive deeper on other things that I really want to dive on. At first I thought I didn't have an answer to your question, but I'm going to give you one last answer. Um, which the reason why because Twitter just poked this into my mind about three years ago I think it was um, I realized that I was using Twitter wrong um, I'd been on Twitter for seven years and one of the things I'd been doing spending a lot of time on Twitter was arguing with strangers about shit that I believed that I thought that they should believe too and it I mean I'm as dumb as anyone but apparently it took me seven years to figure out that that's a losing hand that the vast majority of Twitter fights end with no one changing their minds, just a lot of wasted time, space, and energy. So what I decided about three weeks ago, or three years ago was I was going to stop replying to the vast majority of people who write me on Twitter. I was simply going to see someone either try to refute an argument I had made or say something about a link or even be a positive around a question and say, like, do you know what? I'm not going to answer that. I am simply not going to engage on Twitter. And that is probably one of the lasting changes that I've made to my digital life that has had a really powerful impact. This release, giving myself the permission to ignore people online, oh my God, what a wonder. I'll stop there, even though I have a lot of three other answers to that question if we keep going, but that's all. Well, no, it's actually it's interesting because I want to just ask you about one of those answers. He wants to start an argument. <laughs> yeah. Hashtag. Um, you... You just mentioned your kids, and Robbo and I both have children. And this was an interesting comment you made. You said that if your son, your son does not need to get straight A's, in fact, you would be disappointed if he was getting straight A's. Just run that for me. Yes. So I think that the focus most parents have on the quality of education. Uh, and by education, I specifically mean schooling, um, is dramatically and disproportionate outsized to schooling's importance for life outcomes. And when I say li life outcomes, I specifically mean the ability to lead the good life. Um, and that's a, a term that uh, the Stoics use all the time, right? This idea of getting to the good life, which is very different from getting to, let's say, the rich life or getting to, quote unquote, the professionally successful life. The number of, to take just one example, lawyers that I know who went through, what, four years of law school and working at some law firm as, as sort of an underling for quite a while and then ending up in the supposedly magic position of like successful lawyer who also hates their job is shockingly large. The number of so-called success 
for professionals that I know who do not enjoy what they do and by extension do not enjoy a large part of their life is shockingly high. And if I, again, think back on like, how would I have enjoyed my life if it had not turned out like it did in terms of success? And I think I have some sort of way of answering that because I used to live that life, right? Like, I've not been successful with everything I've done ever. There was certainly a time before um, we happened to stumble across Basecamp that took off where I lived a life that was not successful in the eyes of sort of someone measuring your professional contributions. And I remember that life and it was a good life. And that good life um, came about by having this sense of intrinsic worth, intrinsic motivation, and a focus on activities and uh, pursuits that I deemed worthwhile. And they were not at all connected to what I learned in school, necessarily. And it's not because I'm hating on school. I think there's lots of things that come out well of school. I think that schooling as a pursuit in and of itself is misguided. Um, And I find that a lot of people who end up chasing schooling as a means to itself, which I would characterize anyone trying to get straight A's, there's no fucking way they're interested in everything to that level, right? They're doing it for some sort of um, extrinsic motivation, and that motivation might be they think they're going to get a a better job, or they think they're going to get into a better college, or they're going to get into all sorts of things, right? Puts them on a very narrow track, in my opinion. And I want my son to not be on that narrow track. I want him to spend just as much time exploring all the other hobbies that he had outside of schooling, just as I did, whether that's playing Dungeons and Dragons or riding a skateboard or, um, in my case, playing with computers or video games. Um, I'd say we're playing Zelda right now. Um, and I think he's getting more out of uh, our shared playing of Zelda than he is getting out of uh, learning his uh, letters or overstudying that um, at school. Again, this isn't to say that um, you shouldn't learn the basics. This isn't to say that you shouldn't be engaged in school. It's just to say that this myopic focus on school being the most important thing in life and in many cases sort of the exclusive pursuit is is terribly misguided. And uh, I want to, to make sure that he doesn't get on that. When it comes to parameters then for your child, what sort of parameters do you put on their achievements then? I mean, I guess for me, my 14-year-old my came home at the end of last year with his end of end of year report and I found it in his bag and I said oh you didn't show me this and he said oh I didn't really want you to see it and I said why and he said well you know there's a couple of not so good grades and sort of thinking along the lines of I think what you're alluding to and and sort of how I feel about it was I said to him look you know yes there's a couple of C's here and all the rest of it but on the majority all the comments say you know Jack is trying Jack is giving it his best shot blah 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 and to me that's more important than a grade but I think you're saying even more than that you're saying in some cases that even putting in not putting in any effort is acceptable so I guess my question is where do you draw the line and what are the parameters that you do put around their achievements then I would say I would go even further than that not only is it acceptable I think it's desirable as I said uh, there were those extremes I aced a couple of exams on on my high school um, diploma about things I was really um, interested in then I flunked a couple of classes that I put no effort in but the grades I were most proud of were actually my C's and my B's where I put in like 5% effort. The fact that I could get that amount of leverage from like, I'm going to spend 5% of the effort, I'm going to get like 60% of the of the return on that. Um, that was what I was really proud of. And what I really wanted to boil it down to was just like, 
is this stuff I'm interested in? Is this stuff I really want to learn? And if it is, and I am applying myself, yeah, I would be terribly disappointed if I got an F, be, if I was trying really, really hard to, to learn this math class, right? Then I would be disappointed in myself. And, and by extension, I think the same applies to my son. Like if actually, if he is applying himself super hard and he's still failing, well, something else is wrong, right? Like something's not set up right. Um, and, but I think a lot of the times the, the reason why kids are afraid or ashamed of their, let's say, grades is not necessarily because they wanted it to be better, but because other people, because they thought that other people wanted them to do better. And that's a, a place I really don't want to get to. I don't want to get to a place where um, my son is doing things because I have expectations of him doing that. David, do you still do your planning using a Sharpie? And if you do, what's behind that? What we do using a Sharpie, I think it's less perhaps planning than um, sort of the initial sketches of ideas. And this is really a technique that uh, Jason Fried has uh, taught me well over the, mind, uh, the years. And in, in his specific words, he does use a Sharpie. Like he will actually use a Sharpie or something like it, a, a, a thick pen to draw out an idea that prevents him from getting into minute details because that would be a distraction at that point. And I use a metaphorical Sharpie, let's call it that, when I do programming or when I do writing or whatever. That first I try to define the outline of what is the idea, thinking through the concepts of the idea before I go deep on the execution. There's no reason to use a fine point pen to get all the tiny little details right if you're drawing the wrong picture. So the most important thing is to figure out, am I drawing the right picture or the wrong picture? And I have even figured out what the right picture should look like. And in that way, using a coarse Sharpie is a great way of doing it, whether you're actually drawing with a Sharpie or whether you're thinking through a problem or whether you're designing an experiment or whether you're doing a piece of uh, programming, uh, expend the least amount of effort getting a rough bearing and a rough idea of whether you're going in the right direction. Because if you're going in the wrong direction, no amount of detail is going to save you. Uh, we've kept you way over time. Are you are you comfortable with one more question? Sure. What's the, what's the wabi-sabi philosophy? <laughs> Refresh my mind. Is that something we wrote about in Rework? Yeah. It was a, um, you talked about the wabi-sabi, maybe I pronounced it wrong, W-A-B-I-S-A-B-I. It was either in remote or it was in rework and it was the value, character and uniqueness. It's in rework and it, and it sounds like maybe it's something that Jason or Matt wrote and I have not the faintest recollection about. <laughs> Sorry. That's the best and most succinct answer we've ever had on this show. <laughs> and that, that happens a lot in the studio here with us. Um, let me ask you another question to finish up. And this is just an interesting one. So when you, when you hear sports psychologists, we've had quite a few on the show talk about performance. Quite often they will talk about visualisation. And when you talk to psychologists about anything about uh, performance, they will say visualize it in your mind. It's a very, I don't know, well talked about, well documented principle for performance. However, I've heard you say you use negative visualization. How do you use that? Yes, first of all, I'll say I also do use visualization, especially in sports and especially in driving a race car. Before I go out 
especially for qualifying where you get like one or two laps to really put in a flyer, I do visualize my whole run, which is to think through with your eyes closed and imagine how you're going to drive everything. How am I going to break for this corner? What's my marker? Mentally prepare for it and then just try to execute that mental plan. And that works astoundingly well. But for life itself, as in what do I want out of life, uh, where do I want to go and so forth, I find that negative visualization is a much more powerful tool. And what I mean by that is it's not anything I invented. This is one of those great stoic uh, practices that I've, I had adopted before I even found stoicism and then I doubled down on once I heard that this was also something that Marcus Aurelius and Seneca found use for 2,500 years ago, is basically imagining that that things are going to go wrong. And not only are they going to go wrong, they're going to go horribly. Bad things are going to happen. Um, For example, I visualize all the time that, well, all the time, that's an overstatement. I visualize occasionally that Basecamp is going to blow up, that we're going to have a terminal event that's going to kill the company. Um, That might be that we have, I don't know, some catastrophic hack that somehow we're proven to have been wildly negligent about or um, anything. These aren't based on necessarily anything that I know to to be true. These are just sort of worst case scenarios. And then I think through what would happen? What would happen if Basecamp went away? I've spent my last, what, 15 years of my life having Basecamp at the center of my professional life. And I try to prepare for that event in part because, well, I want to be prepared if it actually should happen, which isn't that far of a stretch, right? Companies implode all the time. So uh, that might very well happen. And, and if it does, I want to have some sort of mental preparation. But even more so than that, and even more relevant than that, I want to decrease my fear and anxiety that it could happen. The number of entrepreneurs that I know who get riled up in this paranoia that, oh, a competitor is going to do this, that's going to put us on really wrong footing and maybe what push us out of business and let that paranoia uh, seep into their mind and, and contaminate the way they look at life, I see is such a cautionary tale. So I want to distance myself from uh, sort of that attachment that if Basecamp should go out of business, do you know what? I can look back at 15 glorious years. I got to work with some of the smartest, kindest, loveliest people I've ever met for long periods of time. There's plenty of people at Basecamp who've worked there for seven years, for 10 years, for 12 years. I got to share their company. We made a great product and we made customers Delighted, happy, more efficient, more productive, able to do bigger and grander things. And if that should come to an end, nothing of that goes away. That still happened, right? Those 15 years still happened. And I have, and Jason and I have designed the business in such a way that even economically, um, everything's still going to be fine. We didn't just invest everything into the growth of the business such that uh, if one day it does pop, that there's nothing left. No, we took money out along the way and stuffed it away. Well, mate, I've got a feeling that you and Jason aren't going anywhere for quite a while yet. You've been very, very generous with your time. Uh, I could go on talking to you. I I really have enjoyed this chat. It's been fascinating, interesting. You've been brutally honest with us, which is what I thought you would do from the start. Uh, Where should people find out more about you, David? Where where do you send people to your socials or to a website? I do have a website, but includes my last name, so no one's going to be able to spell it. Um, So I'm going to send people to... 
Twitter. I'm still on Twitter, even if my relationship is uh, <laughs> complicated. Just don't start an argument. At times, let's call it that. <laughs> At BHH, yeah. Try to start an argument and, and hear the crickets uh, chirp. Um, so that's a good place because that that's really where I post links to a bunch of things. I will warn people that when I'm in a Twitter mode, um, it's not uncommon that I'll tweet 30 things in a day. So it's a pretty high volume feed. I also post writings on our blog. It's um, signalbnoise.com have a lot of um, essays up there. And then, of course, uh, basecamp.com slash books will give you a link to the three books I've written. And that's also where the fourth will go when uh, we hope to publish it later this year as either the comp company or, or something related to that. Well, I picked up Remote uh, in Melbourne not long ago. I, I thought that was a great read. Uh, it's a remote office not required about the world of the remote worker. I think Rework is an absolute fundamental read for anybody, not only in business, anyone who is interested in the working worlds and how we're, the world is changing in terms of the business environment. Uh, it's great stuff. David, thanks so much, mate. As I said, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, I really, really appreciate you taking time out of your day and prioritising us over something else you had to do. So um, good on you, mate. Thank you. Thanks, David. All right, thanks. I'm Anna Devenna. I'm also known as the sleep muse. I help people get a great night's sleep. And often when people are struggling with sleep, I suggest that they listen to the Mojo radio show. And when they do... They fall asleep instantly. <laughs> You've been talking to me about trying to get that guy on the show for ages. Can I just say how well worth it it was the weight was? <laughs> you know what's funny though, and I, I think it's it's quite humbling. But I, when I spoke to David and said, "Can I have forty minutes of your time?" hoping he would give us forty minutes. We actually had him on the line for one hour and 40 minutes. So 20. we are I know. pretty stoked, pretty privileged, very honoured to have him on because he is one of the great minds in programming, performance. And I, I highly recommend, folks, the stuff you heard here was the tip of the iceberg. I would read Rework and I would read Remote and I would look this guy up. I would follow him online. He's very outspoken. He speaks his mind, but he's just, he's just a good brain. The Mojo Radio Show. Now, to take us out this week, I'm taking us to the movies. Nice. Your treat? Have you seen the blockbuster Academy Award nominated The Greatest Showman, the story of P.T. Barnum, the circus man? Mm, musical, no. Yeah, a few people have said that to me. I would, I would recommend going to see it and or getting it on. Is, is a Blu-ray still around? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think Netflix or, you know, one of those iTunes or something, probably. Uh, it shows my age. If, wherever you, I don't know how you're going to get hold of it, whether it's still Blu-ray, DVD, or you just wait for Netflix <laughs> or Apple TV or what, whatever. Whatever. Uh, it's not a musical, though. The thing is, although the first 10 minutes you will go, GB, what the hell are you talking about? This is a musical. Once you get into the story of this incredible incredible man P.T. Barnum his struggles what he went through how he went through it bouncing back but believing in his dream and his children mm. it's an extraordinary film and I just want to play can you just play this little clip here this is from the director of the movie talking about Kiala Settle who was nominated for an Academy Award for the song This Is Me this is the lead song from the show and Kiala Settle is someone who was not comfortable in front of a crowd 
This is the story of what it was like at the big audition to get the green light for the film. Justin had just written this new song called This Is Me. And uh, we knew that it was going to be the anthem of the film, um, but no one had heard it before. And no one had heard Kiala sing it live. And Kiala, who I didn't even want to come out from behind the music stand. I didn't. I, I kept saying to her, just step out, because this is your moment, and you have to step out into the ring, metaphorically, because that's what you're doing, and you've got to stand right there in front of everyone and just belt this out. And I didn't want to. In fact, I stood behind that music stand yeah. until the day of that presentation. There was a moment in the song that I actually was so scared that I had to actually grab Hugh's hand so that I had somebody to hold on to. And then we got to the end of the number, and all I remember is just deafening, deafening applause. It was a sort of otherworldly experience. That's a really great piece. Yeah, I, I liked it because, number, number one, the song I find to be invigorating, and it's on high rotation in our car, and I think it's a wonderful thing for our children to hear. Mm. The question for me is... How many people in their own lives are standing behind their music stand and never get to show the world what they're capable of? I mean, if you think about it, had she not come out from behind that music stand, we would never have gotten to discover this amazing talent. And and it's kind of why I also don't mind X Factor and American Idol, all these discovery shows, because it gives people a forum. Kiala's been nominated for an Academy Award, but we would never have had the chance to hear her amazing voice if she hadn't actually come out from behind the music stand. That's number one, is you've got to have the courage, the guts to have a crack. Mm. And as Wayne Bennett, the coach of the Brisbane Broncos, a rugby league team, said, and it's the title of his book, Never Die With The Music In You. But the second thing is that I got from it, where she said, I was so scared I had to grab the hand of someone she trusted. And... I don't know, there's a lot wrapped up in this little piece for me, but if we, if we know somebody's got the talent, if we can see they're passionate about making cakes, about doing up cars, about working with children in a charity, about teaching people how to garden, then we should grab them by the hand and do everything we can to encourage them to come out, come out from behind the music stand. They've got to have the talent. They've got to have the drive. But even if they don't have the exact talent, if they've got the drive and the hunger and someone to hold their hand, then quite often through hard work, they'll develop that talent. And I, I think people should rewind that piece and listen to it over and over again and think a couple of things. What have you always wanted to do but you're too scared to come out from behind the music stand for? If it gets to the end of your time, what will you regret not having a crack at? What... What could you do that you've always been scared of, but to do it would bring you so much joy and pleasure, and particularly if you can be of service to others and share your gift. And if you're scared, grab someone else's hand. And if you know somebody who's always wanted to do something, whether it be a podcast, to write, to take photos, to to work with a church, I don't care what it is. Grab them by the hand, pull them out, pull them out, help them get out from behind the music stand and belt out their tune. I just think it was a, a beautiful piece and she is an amazing talent, don't you reckon? She's an incredible talent, so why don't we play out with that song? Yeah, let's do it. We're out. I am not a stranger to the dark Hide away, they say Cos we don't want your broken parts I 
Produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. 
See you next time.